thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 133, Ideals versus Profit. Last time, as we saw, the Krupp works were easily surpassing Hitler's target of 600 tanks a month during the second half of the war. And yet, it was not bringing about the glorious victories de Fuhrer and his general staff had promised. Even more, those metal beasts were not holding back the Red Hordes on the Eastern Front. And aircraft production had risen as well. By mid-1944, with the Americans and British contributing their might in Western Europe, Krupps was still producing at least 3,000 aircraft of various kinds each month. But tanks nor planes were alleviating the vice-like grip of the Allies. However, those generals defending what remained of the Third Reich to the east and west were not getting resupplied. Not because new weapons weren't available, not because they didn't have the men for them, not because factories and cities were suffering from saturation bombing, but simply because what Krupp and others were producing could not make their way to the various fronts. After a few bombings, the cities or production sites went from being rubble to pebbles. No, it was the inability of the rail lines to keep up with moving produced items out due to the bombing of locomotives and tracks and the sheer volume of what was coming out of the Ruhr. To be sure, the Britons and Americans, though mostly the former would have to face the world and their own critics for the purposeful destruction of German cities, to which Sir Arthur would never shy away from doing, but the Germans had long ago lost the right to judge. As for the current canon king, Alfred, he went on with his job, his nightly dinners, sometimes going out to watch the latest bombing raids, sometimes not, but he never lost his cool or his faith in Hitler. They would prevail. The anvil, Krupp, and the hammer, the Wehrmacht. As the war progressed, the landscape around Essen changed. That is, there was less of it to see, as the ground became covered with people, people who normally would have no reason to be there. But for whatever reason, and it can be easily argued militarily, that the British would gain little from bombing the Villa Hugel, Alfred's home. Indeed, his entire compound was mostly left unscathed. As such, the Krupp executives were sending their families into the country for the comparative safety. Soon after, the executives of other rural barons were doing the same. Alfred and Berta put them up in the castle as best they could. The rest were welcomed to make do on the land around Alfred's massive home. And this would be one of Berta's last acts of kindness. Alfred's father, Gustav von Bolen, was becoming more uncontrollable with each day. As such, the former canon queen had decided to take herself and her husband to western Austria. This was in the spring of 44. And yet, there would be others who would also be trying to make the best of it among the grounds of the villa. But these people were not Germans. They were not nicely dressed, and they were not free 
to go where they pleased. Instead, they were herded, like cattle, by men wearing the blue uniforms of Krupp's company police. They were the Auslander, foreigners, forced to come to Essen to work. They were scrawny, barely clothed, and uncomfortable to look upon. The long lines of them were walked past the castle. Alfred ignored them completely, and then placed into barbed wire camps. For those who had been held by Nazi Germany for the last four or five years, their lives had altered considerably since then. And this is not in reference to being slaves, for which they were, in 1944, openly referred to. Back in 1939, when POWs were first being gathered by Nazi Germany, at least those from the former Czech state, which the bulk of that country was occupied in October of 1939, the Germans suddenly found themselves with thousands of skilled workers, as Czechoslovakia had its own impressive industries. But even before that, when Prague was seized by Germany in the spring, Gustav and Alfred had asked for and received some of these men. At the time, Essen's view that workers, all workers who helped Krupp were to be looked after, dominated their treatment. Yes, they were forcibly removed, but they were treated to new sleeping train cars for their trip. Sandwiches, beer, waiters, cigarettes, bathrooms, and they were taken on a tour of the city once they reached their workshops. To be sure, foreign workers were still rare in Essen, up to early 1942, but as a greater demand was put on the works to produce more, with the Eastern Front not falling as fast as predicted, more workers were needed. So, throughout 1942, the ratio of German to foreign workers continued to change. And it was in 1942 that Jewish foreigners from the East started to arrive. There had been a smattering of violence against the foreigners in Essen in 1941, but now that Jews were among their number, instead of just being kept in concentration camps, the treatment of all the foreigners in Essen began to change. And it wasn't because food and clothing were scarce. No, this was ideology. Nazi ideology. By the end of 1942, and in some instances as early as late 1941, foreign workers were treated much differently than in 1939. When a prisoner arrived, they were given wooden clogs, blankets with the three interlocking wheels stamped on them, the Krupp emblem, and Krupp uniforms, blue cloth with a broad yellow stripe. The Jews had also had a yellow cloth tag attached. Right away, the groups were separated. Jews in one group, Russians in another, with the white letters SR for Soviet Russian on their backs. Other groups had their own markings, but none of the prisoners were called by their names. Each one had a number, which was sewn in white on their fronts. As the decisions were made how to dress, separate, and treat the foreigners, it quickly shaped up to be a war in its own right. 
Krupp culture in regards to taking care of those who helped the concern versus Nazi dogma. The Nazis won, ultimately, not that Alfred gave it much thought, during or after, while at Nuremberg. As for those naturally of Essen, when the foreign workers first started to appear, Krupp's men ignored them, or turned away, in embarrassment. But with Alfred hanging up the sign everywhere which read, Slawin sind Slavs Slavs are slaves, his people's attitude quickly changed to indifference. Krumpenier slang for these people was Stuka, stock, or cattle. Still, as the Third Reich expanded with each victory, more people, Germans and non-Germans, were needed. The Germans now had more territory to secure, hence more were not in Germany proper, and other Germans shifted around. But at the bottom of this equation, someone's work was not getting done, and this was unacceptable. To which Albert Speer, Reich Minister of Armaments and War Production, had a solution, though one that went against one of the party's most cherished domestic policies. Still, Speer pitched it to Hitler. Why not use the women of Germany? But Hitler balked at this, saying, The sacrifice of our most cherished ideals is too great a price. Speer came back with, General Ludendorff himself had conscripted them in 1916. But Hitler would not budge. Thus, it would have to be slave labor. For comparison's sake, in the U.S., just over three million women worked directly for the war effort. In Britain, the number was an even larger percentage of the country, at 2.5 million. Eventually, Germany would cave in a little on this policy, as almost 200,000 would be selected. However, as this was going against Nazi policy, these women would not be thanked, and they would not be treated very well. With Speer in charge of the hunt for workers, as his heart was not in it, the process was slow and halting, but that changed as Speer was unable to meet quotas. When Fritz Sackel became the general plenipotentiary for labor development in March of 42, his process was exact, widespread, and had the full backing of Berlin. And yet, even he could never satisfy Essen's needs. At Nuremberg, Alfred's lawyers tried to argue that if the canon king had not met the quota given to him by Berlin, then he would have found himself inside a camp, which is preposterous. Krupp's always exceeded their quota, and Alfred stayed a true Hitler follower throughout the war. He was safe, but he was also the canon king. Workbenches must never be idle, certainly as the fortunes of war turned away from the Third Reich. Anything other than diligent work was counter to Alfred's entire universe. If it took slave labor, so be it. But some of the other rural barons did turn away from what the general plenipotentiary was offering. Certainly the abducted foreign women and children, for that's what they were, abducted. 
Still, they could work, and so they did, many of them, for Krupp. Indeed, Alfred became so displeased with how quickly his workers were replaced, either when a new factory opened, or current workers died of starvation, or the cold, or of British bombing, that he made one man, Heinrich Lehmann, his liaison with the German labor front. And Lehmann's modus operandi was simple. He would go around to large foreign cities and fill up his trucks or boxcars with whomever his men first came into contact with. The Krupp concern became known as the Pest Firma, or Plague Firm, for such needy practices. And though Alfred would offer few, if any, excuses at Nuremberg, he still wanted his company's paperwork to be worded in a certain way. Those brought to Essen from Central and Western Europe were labeled volunteers. Other such euphemisms included evacuation for kidnapping, labor in the East for those camps, resettlement for forcibly bringing the poor souls to the Ruhr, and special treatment for what was about to become official policy for the Slavs and Jews. As tens of thousands of workers began to appear in and around Essen, it never seemed to satisfy the new canon king. Hence, he would complain to Berlin, and any missive from the head Krupp would get immediate attention. In the late spring of 42, Alfred complained that the workers coming to him from the east were the rejects. This had to be addressed, if only for those in the human transport services were to avoid punishment. Hence, on July 8, 1942, a report was placed on Albert Speer's desk, defending against Alfred's claims of the lack of quality of the people either sent to him or those who stayed in the East, but were working at one of his hundreds of camps. The report stated, The requirements of the firm Fried Krupp AG for replacement of German workers drafted into the armed forces have been met currently and in time, that Alfred's complaints were unfounded. Still, I have once again asked Sacco to send Krupp 3,000 to 4,000 more workers from the Russian civilian workers presently arriving. And this battle in paper form, would continue. The problem, it seems, were the availability of Jewish workers. As early as October of 1940, General Franz Halder, the chief of the OKH general staff, who, like most Germans, kept a thorough diary, recorded that perhaps the Polish Jews could be used as cheap labor. However, thoughts like this and his continual arguments with Hitler about the Eastern Front would see him dismissed in September of 42. The problem was that this view of using Jews flew in the face of the National Socialist belief that all Jews, everywhere, had to be eliminated. In fact, on July 31, 1941, Goering had written to Reinhard Heydrich, chief of the Reich Main Security Office, who commanded the likes of the Gestapo and SD, I hereby charge you with making all necessary preparations for bringing about 
a complete solution of the Jewish question in the German sphere of influence in Europe. I request the desired final solution of the Jewish question. In response, elimination squads were put together and got to work. And there was only one way to bring about the final solution. Murder. But at the time, men like Alfred were using them in their work camps. But to the SS diehards, an enslaved living Jewish worker, no matter his or her treatment or lack of basic needs, was unacceptable. They were still alive and might bring forth other Jewish lives. That, too, was unacceptable. No, this was against Hitler's aims, and no one or no thing could be allowed to stand in the way of that. However, as the mass killings had started in mid-1941, by mid-1942, there was a labor crisis, one that was felt all over the Third Reich, which affected the war effort, which affected the entire Nazi structure's chance of becoming a thousand-year Reich. And then there were other considerations as well, economic considerations, which at least the elites of the SS understood. By early 1942, reports made their way back to the upper echelons of the SS of the cost of shooting thousands upon thousands of people. The price of each bullet ran up huge debts, which someone or someone's was finally paying attention to. So, in the spring of 42, Himmler, the Reichsfuhrer of the SS, had a German doctor named Beckar work on another way of ridding the world of Jews. He wanted created a mobile unit, some kind of gas van that could drive itself around to any camp and do the deed. But this didn't pan out economically either. What with the price and limitation of fuel, not to mention the cost and time it would take to kill all the inhabitants in a camp. As other ways were looked for, the barons and the SS continued their war of priorities. To Alfred, the solution seemed simple enough. But it would not do to drive headlong into the ideological war currently underway. Germans, like any people, are susceptible to facts, figures, and demonstrations. So the Cannon King got the ball rolling on his plan. On April 25, 1942, he wrote up a memo that flatly stated, To build 80 new heavy infantry guns for the Eastern Front, new expansion was needed, but not in Essen. Instead, he wanted to use a concentration camp in the Sudetenland. This memo was sent to Berlin, and after waiting for a month, Alfred struck. Going straight to Hitler, Alfred bluntly stated, Every party member favored liquidation of the Jews, foreign saboteurs, anti-Nazi Germans, gypsies, criminals, and antisocial elements, but that he could see no reason why they shouldn't contribute something to the fatherland before they went. By mid-1942, there was no reason to mince words. 
Then Alfred pulled out a sheet of calculations that, frankly, Hitler probably ignored, that said if each worker was pushed hard enough, they could offer up a lifetime of work before they died. Der Fuhrer had to see the cold logic of this, but again, the idea of these people living a few more months, maybe a year longer than necessary, riled him. As for Himmler, he seemed noncommittal as well, but his reasons had nothing to do with Nazi ideals. The man in charge of the SS had created his own work camps and was making a tidy profit for the last few years. But Alfred quickly figured this out and again came at Himmler, but this time with the latter's Achilles heel fully exposed. Behind Hitler's back, loyalty is loyalty, but business is business, Alfred offered the Reichsfuhrer of the SS four marks each day per inmate, minus expenses for food, but there would be little of that, while the prisoner was productive. What's more, on the tail end, the SS would receive a commission when the arms made by the slaves were sold. And that was it. Any and all SS opposition of those that mattered melted away. Himmler went back to Hitler and put his enthusiastic support behind Alfred's new plan. In early September, Hitler approved the new policy and wanted a report of how many prisoners were physically fit for such work. The report came back saying 25%, of which 40% were cleared for munitions plants. And Alfred, already knowing his initiative would be approved, had previously written up a memo for Sacco in Berlin. It read, Subject, Employment of Jews. Instead of making a report to the individual labor committees, we request you to note that the Krupp firm is prepared to employ 1,050 to 1,100 Jewish workers. The memo went on specifying what Krupp was looking for, drill press operators, lathe operators, mechanics, but it wanted these men checked out concerning their skills before approval. Alfred did not want his money or time wasted. Essen got its plant in the Sudetenland, but Alfred already knew that this was too small for mass production, so there the men would focus on fuse manufacturing. However, as it was fuses that were his current bottleneck, he would need a second, larger plant to suffice. And now that the door had been cracked open, which mattered little to Alfred, that it was open was all that mattered. He wanted Auschwitz in southern Poland. He already had reports of the skilled labor there, and now, with Hitler's new policy, he got that camp as well. But then again, Alfred always did. On the last day of October 42, just weeks after getting the Javul from Hitler, the Krupp Board of Directors met, and there was only one thing to discuss, building a plant at Auschwitz. The post-meeting report read, The Auschwitz concentration camp will supply the necessary labor. 
and the executives authorized two million marks for the project, whose plans were then inscribed, approved by Alfred. Even for Germans, this was fast, but that's how a Krupp, certainly Alfred, did things. And yet, the battle was not over. The cannon king may have manipulated this new policy out of the Fuhrer, but now that it was done, other industrialists were eyeballing the cheap labor as well. The winter of 1942 came, and yet there was no Krupp factory going up at Auschwitz. Then 1943 came, but again, no manufacturing building. Finally, in late March of 43, Alfred sent his own man to Auschwitz to discern the delay. The Krupp man was given the runaround, but basically it came down to, yes, economics. But Alfred had already put out a considerable amount of money, i.e. future bribes to the SS, just to get this far. So he found out who was running the camp that being Rudolf Franz Haas, a convicted murderer. The full weight of De Firma and Alfred's political clout was focused on this man, who quickly caved. By May 28, 1943, Alfred's Krumpenier had moved in and built a rail junction and a double shed, one for work, one for sleep. Next, Alfred got the best of the 500 remaining skilled workmen. At this point, hundreds of thousands of unskilled Slavs and Jews had already been exterminated. The work by the Jews began in early June. Detailed accounts of their work and the kickbacks going to the SS were kept. What was not written down was the conditions under which the prisoners worked and lived.